that order of events that your dog starts eating and while they're eating, then notices something they're not comfortable about, like the approaching German Shepherd, is the perfect way to teach a dog not to eat. In this episode, I chat with none other than Kathy Sedeo, and we had a chance to dive deep into applied behavior analysis and its application in aggression cases, and I get to pick her brain about things like reverse order conditioning and how that can be a significant problem in aggression cases, such as when a dog isn't taking treats in certain situations. And we also chat about the premium length of a session to work with a dog to modify aggressive behavior and the dreaded undesirable behavior chains that can happen if we're not careful. And this episode is sponsored by AggressiveDog.com, where you can find a variety of educational offerings with a focus on helping dogs with aggression, including the Aggression in Dogs Master Course, the most comprehensive course available anywhere in the world on helping dogs with aggression, and the Aggression in Dogs Conference, a unique three-day live stream event happening from October 22nd to 24th, 2021, with 12 amazing speakers, including Kathy. You can find out more about the conference and register by going to thelooseleashacademy.com. Hey everyone, I'm Mike Shikashio. Welcome back to the Bitey End of the Dog. I am very excited for this episode. I have a very special guest on that I've been following for a long time. Uh, she's somebody I've learned quite a bit from through my career. I've got the brilliant Kathy Sadeo on today. She's an applied animal behaviorist. She owns Bright Spock Dog Training in Tacoma, Washington. Uh, she's a former marine mammal trainer, and she's trained a bunch of other species, including polar bears. Kathy and I just recently actually got a chance to speak at the Clicker Expo together. First time for me. Kathy's been there, I think, since uh, 2003. Is that correct, Kathy? Yeah, it's been a long time. And uh, definitely I've caught quite a few of her talks, uh, and it was a quite an honor for me to be there even in the same place, sharing the same stage with Kathy. So, And Kathy spoke about one of my most favorite topics, which is muzzles as well during the conference. She is the author of Plenty in Life is Free, a book I highly recommend. Uh, it really is a unique way of looking at behavior and capturing behavior and the things that we should probably shift our conversation towards as we continue in our work with dogs. Welcome to the show, Kathy. It's super, I'm super happy to have you here. I'm super happy to be here. This is exciting. Thanks, Mike. You and I have crossed paths some, but not nearly enough. So this is, I'm hoping, the beginning of us working in even closer collaboration. So thanks for having me. Me as well. I'm very excited for this. I want to jump right into this sort of the conversation um, of classical conditioning and operant conditioning, sort of the, the focus of applied behavior analysis in our work with aggression cases. But first, I want to kind of open the conversation a little bit up to most of us as we're learning, especially when I first started learning about working with aggression cases, a lot of the foundation is in learning about operant and classical conditioning. But I do want to bring in some of the other sciences because I think that's going to factor into our discussion and our conversation about what might be helpful for other sciences. So if you had some other sciences, uh, behavior sciences to choose from, or just science in general, what would you recommend trainers and people interested in behavior also branch out to understanding? Wow, you are starting me with an odd and tough, <laughs> tough question. What other sciences? 
you know me well enough, Mike, that I am not often speechless. <laughs> so to not have an answer, like I'm pausing and going, hmm, what would those sciences be? Because I am immersed sort of in behavior analysis, I have to say my background and education in ethology or neuroscience are so shallow compared to behavior analysis that, of course, they're going to be important, but they're sort of in veterinary science. Oh my gosh. They're not the lenses I typically look at my clients' situations through. So when you and I, Mike, are both consultants for families whose dogs have behavior problems, I don't think I work on aggression to the same extent that you do, but that's pretty major source of my clients in my consulting session. I think I am still leaning really heavily on behavior analysis and the part of that that's beyond sort of operating classical conditioning, which is observing. It sounds so like we always give this sort of, oh, of course, we would like our clients and students to be better observers of behavior. We give that short shrift because I find that even the small fact of asking my clients to keep their eyes on their dogs is a huge ask, right? That is not something they're often doing, especially when we're working out in the world, to say to the humans, I know you're very stressed and anxious about the stimuli in the environment and what might be approaching and you're paying attention to the world around you, but that I really need you to be paying attention to the dog who is observing the world around him or herself and is going to reveal their perceptions about the world through their behavior. So in other words, to be able to say, hey, you're watching your dog gives you data on what's happening for your dog in the moment in that situation. It's a little bit of a less satisfactory, rational um, explanation. Michael, one of the questions I got at um, Clicker Expo that you and I just had the great privilege of teaching for a big 2,500-person online virtual three-day conference ah, was fantastic. But one of the questions that came up from um, one of the attendees was, you know, when I watch my dog get anxious on a walk with me, I see something about her behavior change, but I, I don't know what happened. I don't know what she's perceived. And so I'm, I'm at a loss to know what to do about that. The interesting thing is it's very unsatisfactory for us to not be able to go, oh, there was a sound that your dog heard that you couldn't perceive. Yet, by observing the change of the dog's behavior, we actually do have treatment approaches without being able to fully explain what the dog has perceived. So that little piece of observation skills that does fall under the broad branch of behavior analysis. I don't know. I want to pull it out as a separate sort of emphasis in the work that we do that we're going to really bring it down to very fine observation skills, even in situations that could be upsetting for the humans. We want to be able to practice that and give people the eyeballs to be able to see, you know what, you're listening and watching your dog is going to give you so much data on how to move forward in what we do. That's such an intuitive answer because it really is focusing on teaching clients how to observe behavior and observe changes. Because then we can we can be their lens, we can be their interpreter, as well as helping the, them learn that education component about what their dog is doing. Whether we explain it through the lens of applied behavior analysis or ethology or the veterinary model. And again, I don't know of anybody that is is uh, 
uniquely intuitive about all of those sciences, uh, right. sciences, right? I don't know anybody that knows all of them, but it's important to know a little bit about uh, what's going on under the hood of each science because they can be helpful in our approach. Let's geek out a little bit on the ABA stuff here. We run into issues, again, going back to what we work with when we first start out, a lot of that of, you know, straightforward approach of desensitization and counter conditioning is, is uh, fed our way. But it's not always as straightforward as it might seem. So I'd like to unpack some of the typical issues you and I might see, uh, especially if it's if we're kind of um, being a second set of eyeballs on a, on a trainer's case. What are some of the common things you see? Let's start off with just pick one and then we can flow from there. Common things I see that might be obstacles to like best practices in that regard. Yeah, or something maybe just creating a speed bump in the case where you might go and tweak the classical conditioning procedure, the counter conditioning procedure, or maybe even the operant side. So one of the general sort of learnings for me over the last few years, so I've been doing this for a long time. And instead of going, oh, I feel so secure in my solid knowledge of my profession feel like as I do this now going on 35 years, I'm more open to, wait a minute, are you kidding? I didn't ever really fully understand that. So one of the big evolutions in my own teaching and working with clients has been a shift away from primary focus on explaining the techniques that I do through a classical conditioning lens and much more leaning toward an operate lens. I had the Great privilege again of being part of the Clicker Expo that was in England a few years ago called Luminos. And the thing that was different about this conference is very few faculty members and each faculty member taught new material for a half day. So it was a little bit of a more raw material and each faculty member had a long time. So Jesus Rosales Ruiz, Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz had a half day titled It's All Operant. And I came into that half day going, like, you know, come on. I've been using classical successfully for a long time. You know, I come in very braced against this can't be true. And Jesus and his elegance and brilliance by the end of that half day had me going, oh, wait a minute. I think I'm understanding that it's not an either or, but it's the ability to say how much of the behaviors that we deal with are truly reflexive, meaning not amenable to consequences. Reinforcers and punishment do not affect the frequency of those behaviors, which would be the definition of a reflex, which would mean we're talking about classical conditioning. So it's like that circle in the Venn diagram of sort of operant and classical. Fewer and fewer behaviors seem purely reflexive to me, thereby needing a classical conditioning approach. It actually, Mike, doesn't change that much of the nuts and bolts of what I do, But it changes a little bit of my understanding of what I think I'm setting up for the learner. Now, that said, every time we go out to, quote, do some operant conditioning, of course, we're always doing operant and classical at the same time. But the way that I explain it to clients now much more tends to be, see if this makes any sense, hey, we're going to do some counter conditioning trials to get your dog's emotions to be uh, more upbeat in situations they have been upset. I'd like to change the dog's emotions from upset to upbeat by using classical counter conditioning, which tends to be fairly easy for the clients to do. I don't mean easy like it's a slam dunk. I just mean it's not a super complicated technique. So we like that. We like that our clients can do it. I'm much more likely to say now, 
hey, my goal is to take the stimuli in the environment that currently upset your dog and transform them into cues that your dog is going to welcome, is going to be grateful to see because they lead directly to a reinforcement opportunity. We may not be doing the technique that much differently, but it ends up being that we want the dog to be an active learner in the process of identifying cues in the broader environment that signal for them an opportunity to move, to do a behavior, to not be passive in any way, but to do a behavior that we, the trainers and handlers, are then going to reinforce. So that lens is a little bit different for me, and it sort of allows us to tap into, you know, Dr. Susan Friedman would say the power system of our learners. Operant conditioning is empowering in a way, sort of changing our reflexive responses is not. They're both good. They're both laudable. We want to do both. But over the last few years, you're going to hear me, if you were working with me, Mike, explain things a little bit differently and have the first behavior that the dogs are able to do The first trick behavior that the, quote, reactive dogs are going to do in public is going to be eating. Most people do not look at eating as a behavior to be shooting for as something you can shape and train. We tend to go, oh, the dog is naturally food motivated or not. Eating is a trick. Eating is an operant behavior. We can teach eating. And eating is the first step to a lovely operant response in the presence of an attenuated trigger in the environment. The procedure is going to look fairly similar to someone who does this professionally. The explanation and the final goal, I think, is different and better when we're we're sort of using that operant lens. The way you're explaining it, and you, it's like you were reading my mind because I was going to like, Ooh. I'm going to ask a question about that, and then you answered it immediately <laughs> after. I was just thinking about it. So, brilliant Ooh, job like that. with that. Um, <laughs> what would be some some of those operant behaviors you choose from? So, many of us have been doing this for a while. We so we're yeah. familiar with things like engaging or orienting towards the stimulus and marking and reinforcing that particular behavior first, or maybe disengaging from the stimulus. What are some of yours that you like to install? Oh, I love that question. So one of the things that I got to do at Clicker Expo because it was virtual, oh, Mike, I went for a walk with my dog Smudge on the waterfront here in beautiful Tacoma, Washington. Smudge could be described as a, quote, reactive dog. Um, He's been with me for several years, so his behavior has changed and improved a whole lot. But he and I are both flawed, like we're not perfect. And the weather for the two-hour session that we had volunteered to be on camera to I don't know how many people who are watching, um, the weather, which was going to be quite dreary, um, was quite nice, which meant, wow, the waterfront was full of kids and dogs and skateboards and cars and trains. And it was a much more triggerful environment, which was great. It was more realistic, but it was also um, more interesting for me and Smudge. So what people got to see is Smudge's response to another dog on leash in public. So Smudge is very sociable with other dogs. If he were off leash, he's going to be an intense player. He loves other dogs. He wrestles and butt slams and has a great time. On leash, I would describe it as he's really frustrated that he can't go say hi to every dog he passes. And his frustration looks quite awful. He lunges to the end of the leash and barks in a really threatening way. It's not good citizen behavior in my city. I don't think he's going to hurt anybody, but he's certainly going to scare somebody. So we want to change that behavior. 
And so what the audience got to see is Smudge trained to still be sensitive to the presence of other dogs. I have found it to not be a great goal for dogs who are, quote, leash aggressive or leash reactive, tend to lunge and bark at other dogs on a walk in public. I have not had great success at having them become nonchalant in those situations. In other words, clients often say to me, could you just get him to not notice the other dog? I don't really think that's going to be likely. That would not be my technique of choice. The dogs are already paying strong attention, looking, scanning the environment for that potential trigger. So because they're already doing that, I want to use it. So Smudge looks around on our long morning walks on the waterfront. We already did one this morning for other dogs. And I've taught him to treat that as a cue to turn and take his nose and bonk my fist, which is holding the leash with his nose. So he's going to see a dog without my cueing him. The dog is the cue. I want him to turn around and actually touch me. For years, I thought it was enough that the dog turn around and, quote, give me eye contact. But Mike, I'm not always paying good enough attention to him on my walk to notice that. It's a pretty subtle behavior, the glance in my direction. It's much more perceivable for me that he actually bunks my hand, which is always available on the leash with his nose. I say yes and reinforce him with a little bit of his breakfast, which I've got in a bait bag every time he does that. But it's a perfectly reasonable end solution to our pleasant walks in public is that he tattles when he sees another dog. It relieves me of the pressure of being hypervigilant. He's already vigilant. I'm going to take advantage of that. So I do like the hand targeting. Smudge is a 55-pound dog. His nose is on the level of my hand. For shorter dogs, I have two clients right now working on this transforming the trigger that is another dog into a cue, an invitation to do a specific behavior to earn positive reinforcement. Those two short dogs, one is a miniature poodle and one is a um, little schnauzer mix. One is bonking the woman's calf with his nose. It's not quite as easy to train a calf bonk as a hand bonk, but we've got great success on that. It's actually adorable that the um, little poodle is bonking so often that I have a session with this client tomorrow, Mike. This is actually funny. The question from my client is, boy, he has got that bonking down in that context. This is fantastic. Could you make him stop bonking me all the time around the house? Right, which is a request from my lovely client for a bit of stimulus control in other situations. So we're going to work on the don't bonk me all day long with your nose on my calf. We'll work on that tomorrow. The little schnauzer mixes replacement behavior is a high five um, with his paw on the owner's thigh, which is super interesting. I wouldn't have thought of it. I thought of something very complicated like, let's have a target on your pants leg. So let's go ahead and wrap a keychain around your calf so that the dog can super complicated and, you know, <laughs> kludgy for the client. And the client said, I don't want to wear a keychain on my leg. Could I just have the dog bat me with his paw? He likes doing that. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, much easier. <laughs> so replacement behaviors can be anything that the dog can learn to do fluently outside of the triggering situation. And then we sort of import it into that situation. On these walking situations, I like that we can keep moving. So I I want something that isn't too stationary, like a lying down. You could do that, but it actually then sort of in a situation where there's a lot of public passing by, we get too stationary sometimes. 
I do have a stationing behavior where Smudge will hop up on curbs or rocks or stumps. That's our backup behavior, but I don't want to get too stuck in one place if we want to keep moving on a walk. Environmental cues are just such a lovely thing, right? They're so powerful and they prevent a lot of problems, right? Because you had mentioned one of them is not having to be hypervigilant about the environment. One thing I see, I use environmental cues quite often as well. And one benefit is that you kind of strip away the propensity for backwards conditioning or wrong order conditioning where the client does something, choking up on the leash or doing something that is a precursor. The dog doesn't see the other dog yet. And then the client makes a habit of that. And the next thing you know, every time the client does that particular movement or breath holds or leash tightening, the dog's like, oh, great, here comes the other dog. And by using environmental cues, it really, really uh, negates that. Would you agree with that? Oh, I couldn't agree more. And it's a little bit embarrassing how long it took me to realize cues. You know, I I come from a marine mammal training background, which I fully understood for a decade. Like, that was cool. I got to train marine mammals in lots of different settings. And it's sort of its own universe. And then I switched to dog training in 1996. And I'm in a weird transition phase where like, I know how to train marine mammals using positive reinforcement, but that's not really how it's done with dogs. So I'm in this awkward sort of transition phase. And what it took me a very long time to realize, uh, among many things, actually, um, is that cues don't come exclusively from the human. So that sort of baggage that comes from more coercive styles of training that would say, hey, you have to be a leader. You have to be in charge. You give the commands. It's all about you and your authority, that it's your words and gestures that control the movements of the dog. So I sort of had that baggage for a long time that said, oh, cues come from handlers. Cues come from everywhere. They've always come from everywhere. That's how we all respond to the environment. And once I could understand that, I'm like, that's fantastic. I don't have to do so much work. I'm not the only cure. The world is doing that for me. And it could actually be a great relief, right? It's a relief that I don't have to do that part of it. I'm still going to do the reinforcing part of it. I'm going to keep that job. But the signaling part of it, eh, the world is doing that for me. And if I could set it up right, it relieves a lot of the burden of You've got to be paying attention to everything that's happening around you, around every corner. Well, you can't be doing that and paying attention to your learner, your dog at the same time. I don't know. I think I've made some clients crazy by just making them more stressed inadvertently before I could say, (laughs) hey, it should get easier and happier and looser for you each walk you do. It should get easier, not the burden is all on you. Can I say one more thing? Absolutely. Just, just I want to put a pin on the backward conditioning. I want to come back to it. You're going to say something now, but let me come back to the backward conditioning because I have things to say. We'll say it. Let's talk about okay. it. Okay, sure? Actually, I don't yeah, want you to forget absolutely. what you I, have. I have. I have other questions, but definitely okay. want to dig, dig deeper into that topic since we're on don't it. Don't lose yours. So, you know, Mike, one of the topics that I've loved teaching about over the last few years is the fact that clients and students might say, oh, I'd love to do what you do. That sounds so great, but my dog isn't food motivated. Oh, I want those students. Give me those students. I love that. My sassy answer to that is yet. Your dog isn't food motivated yet. It's a learning problem. It's not a... Now, I'm being a little flippant here. Of course, there are medical conditions that could 
compromise appetite. Of course, we want our veterinarians in on this to make sure we're ruling out health problems. But in my practice, the vast majority of non-food motivated dogs have been inadvertently taught to be wary of food, especially yummy, extra novel food in a human's hands. So when you put something super smelly and novel because your trainer has suggested you use tripe in your fingertips and your dog turns his head away from your hand and you go, oh, not that food motivated. And you actually look at the dog who is a few pounds overweight and you realize eats just fine. Plenty of eating going on in that dog, not in the context of training with you. And in many cases, it's because folks have used that food to, quote, distract their reactive dog from a problem in public. And I don't blame them. Totally is the most logical thing in the world to say, I carry good food. I notice a dog coming. I'm going to put dog on my food's nose to make sure he doesn't see that German Shepherd coming at us down the sidewalk. That order of events that your dog starts eating and while they're eating, then notices something they're not comfortable about, like the approaching German Shepherd, is the perfect way to teach a dog not to eat. If we wanted to teach a dog not to eat because we were hired to do a commercial shoot where the dog has to like snub food from the bad guy, you know, that would be the scene. That's how we teach it. We would start feeding the dog and then have something icky happen after they started eating. So that order of events where we definitely use food in training dogs in public but not that timing, not the timing of the human trying to distract from something the dog has not yet perceived. Oh, that digs us such a deep hole. Mike, it digs us a hole in the sense that our clients that are new to us say to us, ah, I've tried that food thing. It doesn't work. And Mike, you and I want to go, which food thing did you try? Because just using food? Nah, that's not it. Using food in a precise way with careful timing and the right thresholds, oh, it can do so much good. But it can also create problems that then spread into the rest of our training. I had a new client in my office two days ago with a dog who's showing extensive, pervasive, aggressive behavior to his owners. And when I brought out food, you could see that dog's entire body language change to instant wariness of me was not wary of me until I put good food in my hand. And then the dog went, what's going to happen? And Mike, this is not about food guarding what was in my hand. This was about the dog going, when people bring out good food, icky stuff happens next. I'm going to be restrained or I'm good. So, something bad's going to happen. And it was a window into that dog's learning history of food has not been a trustworthy tool for the dog. So we've got to get some of that back before we can use food in a more advanced way, right? That's such a good point because I, I'm just saying that I have another client who's going through the exact same thing. Sort of like this trickery, you know, that the dog is very yep. suspicious when treats come out and are used to shove the dog in a crate, right? The dog treat right. doesn't help. So, oh, you got tricked. You're in the crate. Or, oh, now you're in this icky situation. And then that dog actually, some dogs are very intuitive and very quick about learning that Yep. Oh, I know what you're going to do there with that treat. No, no. And this dog has actually turned to biting the owners now when yep. they try this sort of trickery. So we've had to yep. completely shift that. And and I was just thinking back to, uh, you know, it makes me giddy to just think about this paradigm shift 
that we're seeing, what we've seen over the years and when we've gone from really heavy-handed coercive punishment-based training to positive reinforcement training to what we are even now. We're doing this, you know, giving these dogs so much more power and choice to control by using environmental cues. I mean, just, just think about that shift and how much it's able to help dogs. And what makes me happy is how fast the information is starting to exponentially kind of seep into the training world. Yeah, it's just it's exciting, right? It's a gift to everybody. It's actually such a burden off of people's shoulders where they, I don't know, it's just there's so much grief and guilt in the work that you and I do, Mike, that we want to help our humans not feel like they're doing everything wrong or this is all their fault. We want to be able to go end goal of success isn't just your dog doesn't bite someone else. Of course, we were shooting for that. We'd like you to be safe and happy together. Like that is, that's possible in many cases, not all, but many. And that giddiness that comes with our human clients that go, I just took a pleasant walk with my dog. Like that actually happened. Mm-hmm. Yay. That's what we're shooting for. That's good for everybody, right? So I'm sure some of the listeners, I just want to go back to the environmental cues. Some of the listeners are probably like, well, how do you teach that? How do you, yeah. how do you transition? And I, there was actually a whole talk, uh, and I, I apologize. I can't remember who gave it at the Clicker Expo on just tr- cue transfer to environmental cues, yes. right? Yeah. So, Laura Monaco Torelli, I think, yes. does that. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, so Reader's Digest version, how would you teach that? Oh, this is so much fun. I love this so much. Cause this to me, when I first sort of put these pieces together was, Wait, I knew all those things. Did you ever talk to Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz or Dr. Friedman about creativity? Because one of the things, I'm not going to do this justice. This is way above my pay grade. No PhD on me, but bear with me for a second. That you might think of creativity as not brand new ideas that come out of nowhere. It's the putting together of stuff you already had, like the Lego pieces in a new way. So for me, the epiphany on this was, wait, I knew all the pieces of this sort of solution to the puzzle. I just didn't have them arranged right. So if you look at a cue transfer exercise in the most simple version, like if you wanted to do a parlor trick, we're not talking about reactive aggressive dogs. We're talking about, I was going to say simple trick training. Trick training could be quite advanced. So let's just say you have a dog who spins when you say the word spin. So you look at your dog, you say spin, and she does a clockwise circle in front of you, and it's super cute. But you want to change that cue to tapping the top of your head. You just want it to be something that's that's not so obvious. So you're going to tap the top of your head, and you would like your dog to spin. And we trainers go, that's easy. That's just a recipe for how you do that. You would tap the top of your head. The dog would notice you doing something novel, not have any idea what that means. You would then, after you tap the top of your head, translate. You would give the familiar cue, the word spin. So tap the top of your head, translate, spin. The dog does the movement because you already have that functional cue of spin. The dog knows that. You click and treat. You pay the dog for responding to the familiar cue. But that sequence of unfamiliar cue, the new one, followed by the translation, the familiar cue they already recognize and reinforce them. Dogs and all animals will start to anticipate. If you do that sequence consistently, you're going to tap the top of your head and you're going to see the dog start to launch the behavior too early before you've given the translation cue. That's great. That's what we're shooting for. We're going to reinforce that anticipation. This is exactly like teaching a child a foreign language or an adult a foreign language. Gato means cat. Gato means cat. Gato means you pause and the kid goes cat. And you're like, yay, don't need the translation. Many trainers. 
And people who would not call themselves professional trainers, they know this trick. They learned it in a dog training class. They're like, great. What good is that for this serious thing we're talking about? It's the exact same thing. The only difference is the new cue is an attenuated, a weakened, a much less strong version of what you and I would call a trigger, something that reliably upsets the dog in public. So there's dozens of ways we can attenuate a cue, make that approaching German Shepherd. I don't mean to be maligning German Shepherds, by the way. It's just what I passed, the last dog I passed this morning on my walk. But that we would attenuate that for our student dog in ways that include we're further away, or it's a familiar dog, or it's a different orientation, or it's a different time of day, or it's someone else handling the leash. Lots of ways we could make that trigger less familiar. The situation is not as threatening for our dog because we've intentionally mixed it up. So now the sequence is the new cue is there's a dog moving perpendicular instead of parallel at 30 feet instead of 10 feet. And we might even start with a stuffed dog. Lots of ways to make it less problematic. And then we translate for our dog what that means. When do we add our cue for touch, right, would be my cue for smudge to punch his nose to my fist, something we've practiced a lot at home. He's got that behavior. He knows it. Lots and lots and lots of repetitions of reinforcement for that behavior of touching my fist. When do I give that cue to smudge? When he has perceived the attenuated trigger, not when I have, when he has. How do I know he's noticed the fake dog 30 feet away moving perpendicular? I've gotten really good at noticing his body language. So I can see that he leans forward and that he closes his mouth and he holds his breath and he stands on his toes and his ears pinned back. All the ways that we go, the behavior of the student dog has changed to noticing a potential problem in the distance. It's different enough that the dog doesn't launch immediately into lunging and barking. We've set it up that way. We insert the touch cue. We pay generously for him doing that. And then we move on. So what we're actually doing is we're trying to transfer that touching my hand from the human's verbal cue onto, hey, there's a dog out there, is the go signal. It works so well if we do a couple of the things right, and I mentioned them and we can talk more about them, but I want to bring in a cue that is very familiar. The dog has done lots of repetitions. It's very fluent. We're not trying to insert a cue that the dog sort of knows. That just brings more uncertainty into the situation. And then the human ends up sort of yelling the cue and it's just more stress. So we're going to bring in something easy and fun and familiar and the entire reinforcement history of that easy hand targeting behavior, the thousands of repetitions I've done with Smudge in the house, they're easy. I can do 50 repetitions in three minutes. That you, well, maybe that's an exaggeration, maybe five minutes, but that entire reinforcement history comes out on the sidewalk with us when we're doing the more serious work. It's not just that he knows the behavior. He has a expectation of something he really values. It's the attitude of positive reinforcement that enters that fraught training situation. That is the boon for us. It makes our work so exciting, Mike, that we not only are changing behavior, but we're actually making it be really a kind of a happy situation because the dog goes, I know how to do that. I've done that a lot. I can totally do that. Fantastic. That's the practice we want to start. It's such a magical moment, right, Kathy? When we first see that cue transfer happen, the dog sees something in the environment and immediately whips back to do that behavior, whether it's 
orienting back towards the owner, whatever behavior, operant behavior we're looking for. It's, I, I just, I really love when that happens. And my clients also are the same. They're like, oh, look, look what he just did. Or look, look what the dog just did. And it's just, it's so great for me to see that. And then they, I once never they get tire that, of that. just get it. Yeah. And you just said it. It's clients have sort of given us the benefit of the doubt. They're sticking with us. They're like, I don't see the end point. One repetition of that, they then start to see the end point. It's not us talking anymore. They have witnessed something. They go, look what the dog just did. Did you see that? Did you see my dog just do that? I did see that. That's fantastic. Let's keep going. But that moment is everything, right? We love it. Our clients love it. So let's throw some curveballs at this conversation and talk about some of the problems or issues that our clients can experience once they get these techniques down. So we have some other conditions involved, maybe some internal conditions. We have to recognize the dog's experiencing. Maybe it's some temporal condition or the time, the length of the sessions that they have to start recognizing. Um, so some of those more subtle details to get good at, maybe recognizing the conditions or change in environment or uh, distant antecedents, other factors affecting the dog's behavior throughout the day. What's your typical approach to that? Or how do you get clients to really step back and look at it holistically uh, when we've taught them this really great technique that they might start to be like, this is going to work everywhere now that he's got it. Oh my gosh, that is such a great question. Oh, and my dog just woke up from a nap and is seeing if the mailman's coming. There might be massive barking here because (laughs) we have not, we have done no work on the mailman, right? It's a once a day barking fest, which might happen right now. It's such a great question of, you know, the beginning of success and you're like, okay, hang on, don't get too ahead of yourself here because... There's the mailman. What did I tell you? There's a good environmental cue. (laughs) (laughs) And people listening are like, you could change his idea about that. I could. I opt not to. I actually don't care that much, except right now that you're hearing him. Hey, buddy. Thanks. Could you come here? And I'll have a good question for you, too, regarding behavior chains after this. I am giving him a butt scratch for the thank you for letting me know that the mailman was here. Very happy about that. Your question is so insightful because... It's sort of about us trying to guide clients and students to have continued success. So one of the things that that is a very practical problem is to find the right location for clients to do the appropriate level of training, meaning most people can't hire us to be the choreographed presenting the trigger for every training session. They won't train often enough if they need us to do that, right? So we want to I want to be able to send my clients out into public in a not foolish way, in a thoughtful way, where are you going to go to do this training where the risk is minimal, but you can get some repetitions in? Often that is not right out their back door. In fact, it's almost never out their back door. They have to usually get in a vehicle and drive somewhere. So because they've done that, many clients will go, I have carved out an hour of my schedule to drive to this parking lot to do this thing. I'm working for an hour. So I very much want to go. Sometimes Your major effort is in getting to the training location and you're going to do five minutes of training. That's going to be enough to get started. This is very hard for people. This is not how we plan our schedules, right? It's, wait a minute, you mean it took me three times as long to drive there and back to the parking lot than the actual training I did? Yes, that's totally how we're going to get started. Because I don't want you to make the mistake that I, Kathy, make as a trainer all the time. I still make this mistake. Let's keep going and let's see what happens. Let's go a little bit more. Mike, can we do one more trial? Let's, 
And so I had a, a colleague, Dorothy Turley, uh, who said to me years ago, bless her brave heart when she was someone I was mentoring, said to me, Kathy, do you know you always train to the point of failure? Yes, I do. Because I'm that's me. I'm like, I've got more time. I've got more treats in my pocket. Stop when you're ahead. Really, absolutely. Stop when you're ahead. A good training session doesn't have to have like a regression in it. Sometimes there are regressions. You get to that parking lot and you go, I had a plan. Wow. I didn't expect there to be so many people. You can abort a training session. You totally can drive right back home. That's not a failure. You absolutely can go. I'm not feeling very confident about this because there are more people than I expected or my dog seems to offer. Absolutely fine to abort a session. We have goals for how often we'd like our clients to practice, but that is not at the expense of we're actually doing our work to the large extent in the real world with some random variables. Not always in the beginning. We like to control things. We want our clients to have success. We're going to choreograph those sessions using ourselves and our dogs. But there's a point at which we've got to go. We've got to get out there. The only way you're not going to make a mistake is to never leave your house. And now after almost a year of COVID, people are not comfortable leaving their house for 20 more reasons than they already had. They'd much rather stay in their comfort zone. So it's very easy for us all to stay hunkered in and to not brave going out into the world, not in a foolish way, not in a COVID foolish way, not in a reactive dog foolish way, but we got to get out there. We got to do something. So for some of my clients right now, they're, I've suggested to them, can you just do a takeout meal? Don't even do the training. Don't even do the cue transfer exercise yet. I just want you feeding your dog a meal three times a week in somewhere that isn't your comfort zone. It isn't the dog's kitchen. Anywhere. Literally just feed the dog. And if you're not comfortable getting out of your SUV, just use your SUV as a big upper conditioning chamber. Just sit in the back of the SUV and feed the dog. I don't even mean in a well-timed sort of, you know, expert trainer kind of way. Let the dog eat somewhere else because you're not even going to have that piece of the procedure to be able to draw on when we open up more, hopefully soon, when we can do more training without the COVID concerns. So that, that idea of getting out there in a thoughtful way is such a brilliant question, Mike, because it isn't all just smooth sailing then. Let me say one more and then let me go back to you. I know you've got some input, but I want to tell clients, for me, it's never perfect. Smudge still, I would, Smudge and I walk about 35 to 40 miles a week in Tacoma. We like to walk. That's one of our things. And so if I kept data and was really honest and transparent with you, I would say probably about three times a week. Um, I, you know, I'm going to guess about three times a week. He still lunges and barks at another dog. And it's usually because someone has come fast from behind us. We've not practiced that orientation very much. We just haven't gone to the trouble to practice somebody jogging with a dog behind us. He and I are usually both startled and his startle is a bark. It's not dangerous to other people. He's not pulling me over, but it's not, I'm not proud of it. You wouldn't go like, oh, that's Kathy Sedeo. And look, her dog just reacted badly. <laughs> we can live with some real life startling in those cases. And I don't give up. So I don't go, oh my gosh, like this whole thing was a wreck. There's still times he barks. And I now say to people, he's noisy because there's something different about him being dangerous and him actually making noise. So I just want to normalize for folks, noisy humans, noisy dogs. It's not the end of the world. It's not the same thing as an almost bite. Now, I'm here to tell you, Mike, most people can't discern the difference. He does look scary, and I don't want to scare anybody. So I'm going to minimize that. But one bark out of smudge when you come running with your dog behind me is no longer the shame spiral for me. It used to be, oh my gosh, my dog should be perfect. This is my job. Eh. 
we do just fine and have not had any major incidents except one. I fessed up to one incident we had that I can't explain. He lunged and barked at two women about two months ago, and I can't explain it. It was scary for them and scary for me. And we've changed a few of the ways that we walk in public. I threw the shoes out that I had that had no tread. It didn't give me traction to hold on to them. I changed leashes that have a better grip. I'm double clipping the leash at all times. So I made changes in the antecedent arrangement to make sure, please don't ever scare women. He lunged at two women. I don't even understand that. For two days, we didn't go anywhere. I said, we're not walking anymore. That's it. And then I realized, I think there's some way we can continue to walk and yet make it safer. So I guess I want to just say the process is an ongoing procedure. We're learning all the time. I just want everybody to keep learning, staying as safe as they can, but understanding, I don't know, I never get to perfect. Maybe you do, but I don't. I think it's very important that listeners hear your side as well. And also hearing that you experience the same thing as all the rest of us trainers and pet owners out there, you know, and and dogs are not robots, right? Dogs experience, you know, for me, I I think resiliency is is something to pay attention to. And what that means is the, the dog's ability to cope with stress. And you were talking about the length of the session and then you just beautifully stated how, you know, sometimes you just go there for five minutes. And I've had clients would take that. I would, I had one client, she had this mini Aussie and I would go there and literally we would do about 30 seconds of work. Wow. That's all that dog could handle uh, when I first started out. And then the rest of the 59 and a half minutes I was there, this client would just tell me about her life and we would just talk and chat and talk about things we could do later on with the dog. But sometimes that's what's realistic for a particular animal. And, you know, we were able to expend, extend the sessions and we were able to get a veterinary behaviorist involved and start incorporating medication to help. But there are some dogs that they just need short windows. So, you know, a question I have for you is, all things being equal, have you found a certain length of time you find is the premium to work in these scenarios? So, like, so let's say you've got oh, all things being equal. Question. You can set the stage and you can pick the environment as you want. You've got a dog that's food, uh, taking food and working with you. What's your premium time if you were to give it anything? That is a great question. And you alluded to something that trips me up, which is clients have paid for an hour or 90 minutes. Like that, you know what I'm saying? Like they've mm-hmm. got their time. They want to work. So to normalize what it means to use up that time well, right? Which might involve, right? I love the idea of vehicles as sort of upper and conditioning chainer, uh, chambers or pejoratively called Skinner boxes, that the dog can sort of hop into sometimes, right? And sort of have a quiet, sterile break. And then we bring the dog back out of the vehicle to do another minute of training and pop them back in again. That's not a failure. That's really smart training. If I said to clients what to expect, because every dog is different, right? Behavior is the study of one. We say this all the time. And I've had dogs very greatly in what's an ideal session length. But I tell clients An average, if I were to graph that out from the experience I've had, is probably about 20, 25 minutes. Because what we're saying is, if you could train for an hour out in public, there's the possibility, bear with me, I'm not sure this is always true, the dumbbell might be too light. Meaning, if you could easily train for an hour, you might not actually be working that muscle because you're doing curls with a one-pound dumbbell, right? You're getting a lot of curls in. But there's part of us that wants to go... I think you can pick up a heavier dumbbell. You won't do as many reps with the 10-pound dumbbell, but you're actually working the muscle in a way that's building something rather than just counting reps. If you're kind of up against the edge of the dog's tolerance, at the edge of that threshold, 
I'm thinking a shorter training time is probably better. I don't have data on this. This is just my experience at working with clients. So I'm going to ask them to shoot for 20 minutes being pretty terrific, right? Varies by dog, can often do a few minutes of training and then have them have a real break, absolute relaxation. If they go in the car and are barking at everything passing by from the car, that's not relaxing. But a relaxing break can often reset them and we can come back out and do another few minute session, right? I'm right there with you, Kathy. I mean, and it's such a great analogy too. Uh, and if you were to build on that analogy, you could tell clients, okay, you're going to maybe work out for 20 minutes, but you need about 20, you might spend 10, 20 minutes stretching and warming up and 10, 20 minutes cooling down and cooling down exactly. for dogs to be a, you know, a sniffari or de-stress kind of uh, yep. activity, enrichment activity to allow them to unwind. So I, I get that question a lot from my students as well. It's never going to be 60 minutes of exposure to the provocative stimulus. That's, that's way too long, way too long. Yeah. Well, with a rare exception, I was a rare, rare exceptions. If we're just doing a straight desensitization procedure, or we're just there's, yes. there's really not a lot of food happening, it's just hanging out 500 exactly. yards away from something. That's different. Yep. But if we're going with you know the, the actual exposure to the stimulus at that heavy enough dumbbell level, and I love that 20 minutes is what I found also for most cases. Oh, good. I like that we we sort of are uh, can, can agreeing on that. That metaphor of lifting weights, I use a lot. Because almost everybody has that experience. And we trainers talk a lot about thresholds and raising and lowering criteria, which is everything. It's everything you want to teach your clients to do. Like once they've got that, you're like, oh my gosh, that's half of it. But that jargon is not that intuitive for a lot of people. But when you say, you didn't think really hard about which dumbbell to pick up to do curls. It wasn't a huge like brain strain you just kind of try and then you find one that offers a little resistance to your muscle and you do some reps. And that metaphor carries pretty well to not having people get so stuck in picking the exact right distance. Let's try some things with safety barriers in place if we need to. I No bloodshed. There is no bloodshed in our sessions. We'll make it safe. But you know what? We've got to do a little experiment because we're not going to know a priori what the right distance is. We're going to have to ask the dog. Absolutely. Absolutely. So since we're sh- we've kind of shifted the conversation from, from a lot of classical <laughs> talk to operant conditioning Sorry. type uh, talk, you know, behavior chains, right? So what problems do you see there? Now, now I, I get this question a lot too about, you know, dogs charging at the window at the mailman and we call them over and they come to us and reinforce that behavior. So theoretically, in the long term, we could end up setting up that behavior chain. And for me, it really depends. It, it depends what the end goal is. And what's normal for most dogs, you know, some dog, if the client says, I don't want my dog ever barking again, well, that's not very fair to the dog. We have to expect some barking at certain stimuli. Do you see problems in some contexts? So like, I have no problem with the client calling a dog over from the window. And then so instead of barking for 10 minutes during a podcast recording, they come over and they're quiet after two barks. Thanks for letting me know someone's there. Now come over and get your reinforcer here. And that's perfectly acceptable and a nice end goal for me. But do you see maybe problems in other scenarios that that could become a kind of exacerbate conditions over time if you're not careful? You guys can't tell, but I'm actually showing Mike now, my dog who <laughs> barked wildly at the mailman, and he's uh, completely asleep in a really dramatically he's set smudges he sound asleep. From that exercise. I, you know, it was <laughs> his morning job is done. He is snoozing and dreaming over there on the couch next to me. Oh my gosh. You said something I I need to re-say. Oh, I love this. I I read a quote many years ago, and I I don't know who the quote was from, and I apologize. Um, And it was in a um, 
teacher's manual, uh, teachers of children. Um, and it said, you better have a really good reason to need a four-year-old to be quiet and still. And I love that. I love that insight to go. Sometimes you do need a very young child to be silent and not moving. But if that is your go-to goal, there is a bigger problem there. And I think we're often guilty of that with dogs. I'm the girl who often, when people go, I want calm. That makes me sometimes cringe because, as Mike knows about me, I'm gesticulating now. I talk intensively. I'm moving all the time. And when people say to me, calm down, it's an implication that there's something wrong with my moving a lot and talking a lot. And I realize it may not be something you're used to, but in my culture, Italian-American, my gosh, this is calm. This is as calm as my family ever gets. So when we say, do you need absolute silence or absolute stillness, where sort of older styles of dog training would ask a dog, command a dog to plots and stay, right? You're going to lie down and stay still. We might need that, but I really want to ask that question. So in my life with Smudge, that idea that you see and hear things outside the house and you want to let me know about them, I that's great. I, I actually, I value that. So that he's going to bark when the mailman comes, or let's say I got a delivery right now. He's going to bark again if, you know, Amazon delivers something. It's the fact that um, he's not deeply upset in a way. I can't interrupt and redirect. So he's not that upset. He's, if you watch his body language, I know you guys can't, but he's going, it's the mailman. I don't like the mailman. Did you know the mailman's here? Okay. Oh, the mailman's gone. I, I don't know that there's anything to change. Now, there are certainly clients' dogs where the barking is much more frequent at many more things. The dog is really worried about it. I might want to change the behavior because the behavior is a symptom of an underlying emotion, which is not good for the dog or the family. But I think it's super important to parse out where we get in trouble, reinforcing a problem behavior by putting a cue on top of it. And that's absolutely true. One of the burdens of positive reinforcement training is everything becomes a conditioned reinforcer. All your cues are reinforcers. Every glance and touch, they all become secondary and tertiary positive reinforcers. That's fantastic. You've got dozens of ways to reinforce your learner, but it's a problem when they're making a mistake because what are you going to do in the moment they're doing something you don't like? You're going to try your best to not reinforce it, which actually is more challenging than it sounds because pretty much everything is some version of a reinforcer. So I want to be careful when people go, if I call my dog who's digging in the yard, my dog is digging in the yard and I call him, when I just called him, use that, that cue here. Well, I've super reinforced that behavior. That signal here has become a reinforcer. I just reinforced digging. Yes, you did. But you're only going to have a problem if you don't want digging. I don't fully understand that. I think digging for dogs is something to encourage, but many of my clients disagree. It's only going to be a problem. You're only going to build the behavior chain after many repetitions of that linkage in most cases. So it's only after 10 or 20 times of the dog digs and you call here that you get more digging. So you have a chance to be able to go, I can do something else about the digging using antecedent arrangement to lower the probability. So I love that people talk about, hey, could I create an inadvertent behavior chain that I, I didn't want? What a insightful and excellent question. You kind of go, huh, every behavior chain I've ever created effortfully, intentionally, 
Guide Dogs for the Blind, learning to lead a blind person through an entire block of obstacles and traffic to get to the next down curb. What a beautiful, challenging behavior chain that every guide dog learns. We know how much effort goes into building that chain. They're not that easy to build a really reliable chain after a few repetitions, right? So I would say if you've called your dog the third time out of digging in the yard and you're like, "Uh uh-oh, I think I'm creating a problem, do something about preventing him from getting to that part of the yard so you don't have to keep repeating it. I guess that's what I'm saying. Did that make sense? It totally makes sense. It it seems like, and it, it sounds like we have to differentiate the underlying emotions also going on. So a dog that's digging is having a good time, we can assume most of the times. We're exposing the dog to an environment where they are afraid of something or phobic of something. We're running the risk of many things, uh, setting up an undesirable type of behavior chain. But we're also, of course, potentially impacting our cues, poisoning them. So there's, there's lots of problems with that. Kind of a secondary question. What do you do when a dog has multiple triggers or phobias or pr- provocative stimuli? How do you set the stage then? Let's say, I'm going to throw another curveball yeah. at you, Kathy. How about you're in a city environment and the yeah. dog has issues with kids, bikes, strollers, cars, buses? I know. I'm doing some virtual consulting with a brilliant trainer in Manhattan. And boy, her dog is great. She's great. And I'm like, I choose not to live in Manhattan. I, I mean, there's no kidding that that intensity, that, that density of stimuli, I, I personally couldn't handle. So I'm, I'm not cocky about going, oh, here's what you would do in Manhattan. Boy, it is pulling out her very best training. Um, and what's funny is the reason she originally called me, she is a skilled trainer, not professional trainer. She just knows her dog. And she called me because she has so much trouble with how much food her little poodle passes on the way from her apartment to Central Park. They walk every day and there's garbage on the ground, food garbage on the ground. And so she said, I have tried to positively teach, leave it. But she said, every time I do it, it just gets poisoned by my having to say it so often and jerk the dog. I want to start from scratch again. Can you help me start from scratch? Teaching, leave it as a totally positive cue because she said, I keep wrecking it because it's so challenging. And I'm like, if I had a dog that small and lived in Manhattan and had to walk from my apartment to Central Park, I'd carry the dog. I'm just telling you, my solution would be that dog is not walking on the street. To the Nothing park wrong because, with a doggy stroller, right? Thank <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I got the snuggly and I'm not even, wow, that is a training. Oh my gosh, that's a, it's a huge training challenge. You asked something else about living in a city. Hang on. What was the piece of your question before that one? So, uh, you know, again, with multiple phobias, multiple, like how do we, how do we arrange the environment? Because we can use distraction techniques, but you really have to be careful as we were talking on earlier in the show about how, you know, distractions or lures can, if we're not very good with the mechanics and the dog ends up seeing what we're trying to distract them from, we're running a risk there, right? Those multiple triggers, I have to tell you practically what I tend to to do. So first off, yay that Dr. Chris Puckle, amazing veterinary behaviorist, is not too far from me so that I can pull a veterinary behaviorist who's also a really skilled trainer in on the team very easily. Hey, we need to get some traction somewhere. Or we run the risk that our clients aren't going to get any success. There's no behavioral momentum for our clients. And even if there were a training solution, they're not going to see any progress. So I want to be able to sort of take the low-hanging fruit on which triggers could we make the most impact on so that you can see we've got some techniques that might matter. And very often, as you know, Mike, it means that in the short term, that dog may be leading a quite constrained life. So we're often saying to clients, 
we're going to suspend their normal activities, which is frustrating for everybody. But we need to create some consistency and safety where their daily life is not triggering them so often that they're physiologically set up to be more and more reactive. We just need to give them a break. And that's not pleasant for clients who can't take the dog to agility class back when we had agility classes before COVID or take the hike in the park. And we're saying, I'd like you to not go to the dog park or whatever for a while until we get some behaviors changed. That's often a big piece of it, but an important part that says it's in an effort to make some progress on some of those triggers. But I've not had success at tackling them all at once. It's like trying to teach someone to juggle four balls at once. You got to juggle one ball at a time. And I've I've had people teach me to juggle and I am not very dexterous. So for me, one ball is more than enough for me. Or I just put the juggling balls away and go, I suck at this. Mm-mm-mm. And with the right teacher, I'm going to be good. I'm going to have success at juggling because they're going to split it to the place where I can be successful. That's us, Mike, looking at a situation and going, we're going to try very hard to split it to where it can be successful. At the same time, not being so Pollyanna to not say there are situations so dire and dangerous that we might recommend the likelihood of successes is small and the likelihood of someone being hurt is very high. So I don't want to, I don't want to give the false impression that everybody coming to see me has a successful behavior modification. That is not true. And I no longer look at that as failure. That's the job I have. Yeah. And kudos to the clients that live in the city, right? They, they're, yeah. the analogy I use is that it's like they're learning to drive, but they are driving in New York City environments, not in the countryside. It's a whole different skill set, whole different, you know, and they're, they're choosing to, to keep that car in the city when they're working with their dog. Kathy, I've had so much fun talking to you. This has been a great conversation. I wish we had more and more hours to do this. That went fast. Where can people find you? Where, where's, where's a good place for you? What are you up to next? Well, you can find me on my website, which is my name, kathysadeo.com. And my last name is spelled oddly. It's S-D-A-O for people that search for a different spelling and go, it's not there. And you can find um, the current things I'm doing there. And let me just, I want to give a shout out because the timing, this timing of us doing the recording is pretty special for me because tomorrow um, drops the first I was going to say episode, are we calling them episodes, of a new project I'm working on with four of our colleagues, Mike. You're familiar with all of them, I think. Um, Dr. Chris Puckle, who I've already mentioned, veterinary behaviorist in Portland, Oregon. Uh, Marissa Martino, a trainer in Boulder, Colorado. Barry Finger, a trainer outside of Boulder, Colorado. And Lynn Unger, a poet and minister and uh, non-professional dog trainer, skilled trainer, but she doesn't do it professionally in um, Vancouver, Washington. And we are launching a project that we're calling Lima beings or Lima beings. And that is a shout out to the acronym us training and veterinary professionals are familiar with least intrusive, minimally aversive, L-I-M-A. With our tongue in cheek, with a little bit of pun, we're calling our new project Lima beings. And you can find us at limabeings.com. And as a way to say, we training and veterinary professionals would like to extend the ethic of unconditional positive reinforcement for the non-human animals in our care, those dogs and cats and parrots and horses and pigs and dolphins that we usually quite easily extend that ethic of unconditional positive regard, preferential option toward positive reinforcement in those learners. We want to extend it to the humans uh, in our care and contact uh, the clients and students and colleagues and those folks that it's much more challenging 
to be universally positively reinforcing towards because we've not been socialized to use positive reinforcement with one another as humans. Our language is usually not very fluent in that regard. So we decided that we wanted a space to be able to have discussions about that and some practice and some support in what would it look like to be at least intrusive and minimally aversive to a uh, trainer who doesn't think the way I do, who uses tools that I wouldn't use, or the clients who came to me two days ago with the profoundly aggressive dog who's currently wearing a shock collar. I've got an issue with that. I would like them to make other choices, um, but I'm not going to shame them for doing that. That's the best approach that they've had up till now. So we're going to continue the conversation, I hope, but in a way that allows us to be kind and respectful to one another while still being honest about things that are true for us. So authentic, honest, and still positively reinforcing. We didn't know a place where we could have those kind of conversations, so we created it. It's a membership community, so I don't want anyone to go to the website and go, this is all just great free material. It is a membership community where we're inviting folks to watch a pre-recorded conversation among the five founders. We'll drop an episode once a month. Our first episode, again, drops tomorrow. Um, and then we'll have a live conversation uh, on Zoom once a month where we can discuss not just the words about, oh, that's very laudable that you would try to use positive reinforcement on other people. No, no, no. Where the rubber meets the road. What does that look like? What habits are we developing in us? What's a splitting approximation for the shaping we're going to do on our own behavior? How do we go out into the world and make mistakes at doing this and be brave learners about it and create a community that says, good dog training can change the world. Like you teach someone to use positive reinforcement with a dog. Hey, they're going to change their relationships forever forward. We know that. Let's continue to push the learning for all of us as professionals in that regard. And I know I need help. So we're, we've created a space where hopefully we can help one another do it. It's brand new though, Mike. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm super excited about it. Lima beings, as in humanbeings.com is where you can find out more about it. And you can certainly email me from my website if that uh, sparks some questions in you. I'm really excited for that as well. It's such, a, it's such a brilliant project with some brilliant people. So very much looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to seeing you at the Aggressive Dog Conference also in October. Kathy is going to be speaking there. So stay tuned for more details about that. Kathy, thank you so much for joining me. I hope to see you again very soon, and uh, we will definitely talk more as we go along. Fantastic. It was my great pleasure, Mike. Thanks, and every success to you. Thanks for joining me for The Bitey End of the Dog. If you like the show, please feel free to subscribe, share, and give a rating. And hop on over to AggressiveDog.com or the TheLooseLeashAcademy.com for more information about webinars, courses, and conferences, all dedicated to helping dogs with aggression issues. And don't forget, the Aggression in Dogs conference will be happening from October 22nd to 24th with 12 amazing speakers, all streaming from a television studio in Chicago. It's going to be a truly unique event in 2021.